All right, well, uh, last week we began a brand new series called Life Defined, uh, knowing what matters most and why. And um, Lord willing, this series will take us through the end of September. And the main premise behind this series is to really set aside these few weekends uh, to realign our focus, both as individual followers of Jesus, but uh, also collectively as a church, to realign our focus around the things that God says should matter the most and why those things should matter the most. And my prayer really uh, through this series, and it will continue to be, um, God, whatever you have for us as a church next, whatever's around that next corner, do things that can only be explained by the work of your hands. Like, whatever, whatever you have for us next, do things, Lord, that can only be explained and understood by your power at work among us. And so, last week, we began this series by asking perhaps one of the most important questions that we could ask in our life, uh, what is most important to God? In other words, what is the mission of God? And we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 48 that the mission of God is the glory of God. The mission of God is the glory of God. God is who he is, and God does what he does so that he gets all of the glory. And that really has some massive implications for our lives because it directly impacts our understanding of the way that God works within us in order to save us and bring us into relationship with him. God has delivered us from his wrath. He has showered us with his grace so that we will spread the glory of his name to all peoples, both here at home, but also clear across the world. Which actually leads us then directly into the theme of today's message, which is the mission of the church. The mission of the church. If God exists and works in the world and in our lives for the sake of his glory, then what must we do as a church in order to glorify God. And when you think about it, that is a really, really, really important question for us to answer. It's important for us to know the answer to that question because if we are not careful, we can find ourselves as a church trying to do a lot of good things. Like we could be giving a lot of time and resources to feeding the hungry and caring for the homeless and loving the lonely and, and meeting the tangible needs of many of the people around us. And those are genuinely good things that as a church we should be doing. But here's the thing. When we see so much physical need that exists around us every day, we can sometimes become very blind to the primary mission that God has given to us as a church. And so on the one hand, we can sometimes see the mission of the church as all-encompassing. We do whatever we can to meet as many needs as we possibly can. But on the other hand, there's another equally dangerous temptation where we begin to think that the church is not here so much for us to meet the needs of other people as it is for us to meet the needs of me, you, us. Like, think about this for a minute. We go to the grocery store and we get what we want and we expect to get it in a certain way. We go to a restaurant and we get what we want and we expect to get it in a certain way. We invest in houses and cars and education and when we invest in those things, we expect them to be delivered to us in such a way that it makes us feel good about the investment that we're making. I was in Denver this past week, just outside of Denver for a pastor's prayer summit Great experience. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later. But uh, when I flew to Denver this week, there are certain expectations that you have when you get onto the plane. Like you expect to get the seat that you paid for. 
although I understand that's not always a guarantee anymore. But you expect to get the seat that you pay for. You expect friendly service. You expect the headphones, the free headphones that they give you so you can enjoy some of the in-flight entertainment. You expect an astronomically small bag of pretzels, right? Like you expect those things, right? And if something doesn't go the way that we expect it to go in the store or in the restaurant or on the plane, then we make sure that somebody else knows that our perceived needs are not being met in the way that we want them to be met. And unless we pay very close attention, it can be really easy for us to bring that same consumer mentality into the church to the point where it becomes about what we want and what we like, and it needs to be delivered to us in the way that we want it to be delivered. So that what we end up with then is the people with the most popular preferences or the most powerful personalities end up pointing the way forward for the church to go regardless of what the Bible might actually say. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having preferences Nothing wrong with enjoying some methods or some approaches or even some styles more than you enjoy others. There's nothing wrong with that. But what if the church is supposed to be about more than that? What if, what if the church is about more than meeting the needs that we see around us or even meeting the needs that we feel within us? Because if preferences and personalities are the only criteria for how we do church, then we'll be fighting never-ending battles of competing desires. Like there has to be a higher standard that guides us. And the good news for us is that Jesus himself, the one who is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that's the church we want to be a part of, right? That as Jesus is building his church, he himself has established a crystal clear mission for the church that is greater than any of our preferences or any of our personalities. And so what I'd like to do in the few minutes that we have this morning is show you from four places in the New Testament exactly what Jesus says is the mission of the church what the church is to be and to do. And I want to show you exactly what Jesus says about this, not just for our church here. This is not just about the mission of our church here. This is really the mission for every church that is committed to loving and following Jesus Christ. And so as we do that, today's message is going to look maybe a little bit different than uh, what we normally do. Usually we take one passage and we walk our way through that passage verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And today, uh, I'd like to take you to each of these four Great Commission passages in the New Testament to see what Jesus says is the mission of the church. And by necessity, as we go through this, as we examine each of these four passages this morning, the application really, for the most part, will be geared collectively toward us together as a church. Not just to us individually, but us together as the church of Jesus Christ in this place. And so, uh, we're not going to be able to go through word by word in each passage like we normally do, but I want you to see some really important truths in these passages that Jesus teaches about the mission of the church. And that then, Lord willing, will lead us into a very exciting, very humbling opportunity for us today as we commission uh, two elders a very important time for us in the life of the church as we seek to fulfill God's mission here in this place. All right? Now, as we think about the mission of the church, uh, there are many different ways for us to articulate that. Uh, and the way that we articulate that here is simply to say this. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. 
So we exist to glorify God. That was last week's message, right? The mission of God is the glory of God. God does everything that he does for the sake of his own glory, including what happens within the life of the church. So we exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. We'll be unpacking that as we go this morning, but that is essentially to say we make disciples of all nations. We glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the spirit of the Great Commandment. So we do this in a spirit of love for God and love for one another. Now, you can say that in a number of different ways, but there are certain elements that are absolutely essential when it comes to the mission of the church. And so we're going to look at these four passages this morning, beginning in John chapter 20, and from those four passages we'll form one long sentence for what Jesus says is the mission of the church. So if we are committed to Jesus' mission for the church, then we must realize four fundamentals of that mission. So let's begin. John chapter 20, skip down to verse 19. Uh, The disciples are gathered together in a room, and Jesus suddenly and supernaturally appears to them. John records this in John 20, verses 19 to 21. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So a little bit of context here for John chapter 20. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead just a little while before this. And the disciples now are moments away from Jesus leaving them and returning to heaven, and they now, the disciples, will be the ones who will take this gospel and they will proclaim it to the people around them. And the first lesson that we learn here is this. We are sent by Christ. We are sent by Christ. Notice verse 21 again. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So John says that Jesus is saying this to them again. He said it back in verse 19 as well. And the question is, why does Jesus have to say this twice to them within such a short span of time? Well, remember what's going on here. Verse 19 says that they had locked themselves in this room with all the disciples for fear of the Jews. In other words, their relationship with Christ has made them a target for people who don't believe. And notice the first thing that Jesus does for them when he comes to them. Outside of assuring them of his peace that he gives to them, the first thing Jesus does is he reminds them in the midst of their fear that he has risen from the dead. Like he comes to them, he shows them his hands and his side. He reminds them that he has died on the cross in their place and for their sins. And now he has risen again from the dead and he is there with them. They have the presence of the risen Jesus right there with them. And it's in that context then that he says to them, as the Father has sent me, verse 21, even so I am sending you. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is teaching them, and he's also teaching us, that he knows how hostile the world is toward them, toward the ones who follow Jesus. Jesus knows how afraid we often are to say something when we have the opportunity. And maybe most importantly, Jesus is teaching them in that moment that the most important thing that you can give your life for is the mission of God, to do what God wants to do. That's why he says here, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Like, I love, I love that verse. And I love it for a couple of reasons. Notice, first of all, there's so much clarity in that statement. 
Like so much hope, so much clarity. Jesus says, I am sending you, period. Like I'm, I'm sending you. And, and when it comes to being sent, part of what this teaches us is that you don't need to be a pastor to be sent. Like when it comes to being sent, you don't need to go to seminary for three years. You don't need to work at a church. You don't need to be a missionary. Like when it comes to being sent, you don't need a platform. You don't need a program. And you don't need a charismatic personality. Right? And all the introverts in the room said, amen. Right? Like we're all huddled in the corner over here just whispering to each other, if God can use me, then he can use you too. Right? Like you don't, you don't need the platform. You don't need the program. You don't need the personality. What, well, we all need personality, right? But you know what I mean. What we need, what we need is perspective. Because as we go into a hostile world, we go with the power and the peace and the presence of the risen Jesus. That's what gives us the confidence to go. So notice there first the clarity of that statement, but then also notice the urgency of that statement. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Father, notice this, the Father sent the Son into the world to lay down his life because eternity was at stake for the souls of people. Like, just think about this. All believers who have ever lived and ever walked the face of the earth from the beginning of time would be sentenced to the eternal judgment of God were it not for the Father sending his only Son to die in our place. And so now, Jesus is sending us into a hostile world for the very same reason. Eternity is at stake for countless numbers of people who, unless they believe in Christ as the only hope for the forgiveness of their sins, they will die in their sin. And for 10,000 years upon 10,000 years, they will only know the wrath of God. Like when you read... What Jesus says in verse 21, you have to understand that there really are no other options for us. If you are saved, then you are sent. And if you are not going, then you are disobeying. If you are saved, then you are sent. And the sent life is the spent life. Like the one who understands that they are sent on a mission for God, for the glory of God, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one who understands that will come before God and say, God, here I am. Send me. Like, God, here I am. I'm laying down all of my life. I'm laying down my family. I'm laying down my career. I'm laying down my finances. I'm laying down my future. I'm laying down everything that you have given me, everything that I have in this life, and I'm going to spend my life for your glory, for the spread of your gospel, and for the sake of your name. Like, that's the spent life. If you're saved, then you're sent. And we see here that that we're sent for a very specific purpose, which actually leads us now to Matthew 28. That's the second passage we're going to look at and to the second fundamental uh, of our mission. So turn back in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew's the first gospel in the New Testament. Chapter 28 is at the very end of that book. Flip back to Matthew 28. Here's the second part of the sentence. Point number two, we are sent by Christ to make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, Jesus reinforces that. We are sent by Christ to make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. <clears throat> and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, based on the way that sentence is put together in the original language, we know that the the main command in that sentence, in that paragraph, is to make disciples of all the nations. And the way that we make disciples of all the nations is by going, baptizing, and teaching. So we are sent by Christ to make disciples wherever it is that he leads us. And why do we do that? We do this because there is a king who is worthy to be worshipped by people from all the nations. Like, think about this for a minute. Matthew has written this entire gospel to tell Jewish readers that Jesus is the king. Not just over their little nation of Israel, but Jesus is the king over every nation of the world. That's why Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so now, this king who has authority has given us a mandate to go and tell people from all the nations that he is king over all. He's king over everything, and that if we will surrender to his rule and reign, then we will experience the benefits of the kingdom as a child of the king. Like, this is what gives us the confidence to go to all the nations with the gospel, because Jesus has authority as king over every last one of them. Like, I read that, and I think about Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 at the end of the Bible, and and really as, as the end of human history, and like all of human history is pointing to that one moment. Revelation 5 and 7, there's still coming a day when people from every tribe and every language and every nation and every people will gather around the throne of God and forever sing the praises of his name. Like God, even right now, is gathering people into his family so that one day, that day will come where people from every nation, every tribe, every land will gather around his throne and sing the glory of his name forever. Like this is why we go, because we serve a king who is worthy of global glory. Like this right here, the global glory of God. This is why we must be committed to going to the nations, even though some of us will never leave Brantford. Now let me say that again, because that's really, really important for us to hear. The global glory of God is why we all must be committed to going to the nations, even though some of us will never leave Brantford. Like... I hope, and, and I'm just praying as we make our way through this series, that God is working in each of us in such a way that if he were to lead any of us to lay down our life so that we could literally go across the world for the sake of his glory and the spread of his gospel, that we would be ready to stand up and say, here I am, Lord, send me. Like, I pray that God's just moving. And I'm praying that for me, too, not just for you. I'm praying that for me. Like, I've been praying that this week so much. Like, God, just work in my heart so that I'm ready, that if you call me to go, that if you call anyone in this church to go, that we would be ready to stand up before you, the holy God of the universe, for whom all of human history is moving to this one singular point where we're going to gather around this throne and worship your holy name, that if you call us to go, we're going to be ready to leave it all behind and go. And yet at the same time, even when the Lord keeps us here, like you may not go across the nations. God may call you to that, but he may not. And even if you stay here, even when the Lord keeps us at home, our call is to make disciples here 
with a view toward disciples being made among all the peoples of the earth. Like, just just think about what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28. Just follow the train of thought through this. Like, God saves us, and he brings us into the church. Brings us into this universal family of God through faith in Jesus Christ and, and then brings us into this local family right here, this local gathering, this church. And, and we get baptized as a way of publicly identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection. Some of you might be here right now and you haven't been baptized yet. You haven't taken that step of obedience. And, and I want to encourage you, exhort you, you need to do that. You need to take that step of obedience in the waters of baptism and publicly identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 28. And we live a life of obedience to the commands of Christ. That's what Jesus says here in Matthew 28, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We live this life of obedience and we encourage others to do the same as well. And we go and we tell others, this is what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 28, we go and tell others that Jesus can do the same for them that he has already done for us. And in doing that, listen loved ones, in doing that, the Lord will lead us to where he wants us to go, whether at home or away. Here's what it comes down to. As we do the things that the Lord has told us to do, the Lord then will do the things that only he can do. Okay? He's going to be the one to raise up people who might be in this room right now. He's going to be the one to raise up those people to take the gospel perhaps to a people group somewhere in the world who to this point have never even heard the name of Jesus. Like, he's gonna be the one to work among his church and in his people to do those things. Like, I think of Acts chapter 13, kind of one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and and the believers are gathered in a room together with no agenda whatsoever. They're just worshiping and praying and fasting and living in obedience to the Lord. And it's in the context of that prayer meeting that the Spirit of God says to them, set aside for me Bartimaeus and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the disciples then continue to pray and fast and worship and the leaders come alongside them. They lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul and then they send them to parts of the world that to that point had never even heard the name of Jesus. Like, listen, When we do what the Lord has told us to do, he then will do what only he can do. He's going to be the one to raise people up. He's going to be the one to send people from this place with the good news of the gospel. And when we begin to see it like that, that's when we begin to see the true call to discipleship. That's when we begin to see that discipleship really isn't just some category of your life. It is your life. Like that's when we begin to see that all of our worship and all of our praying and all of our giving and all of our serving, no matter where you serve, and and all of our sending, all of that is for the sake of glorifying God by making disciples of all the nations. The million dollar question is this. How do we do that? Like how do we make disciples? And that leads us then to the next part, Uh, To Luke chapter 24, turn in your Bible, if you would, flip ahead a couple of Gospels in the New Testament to Luke chapter 24. Much like uh, John chapter 20, Jesus is with his disciples. They are overjoyed that their friend and their Savior is with them, even though he had just died an awful death only a few days before. We pick it up in Luke 24, verse 46. 
where Jesus tells us how we go about the task of making disciples. Verse 46 of Luke 24, and, and said to them, this is Jesus speaking here, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to these things. So notice this, number three, we are sent by Christ to make disciples of all the nations by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we make disciples, by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are sent with the message that Jesus suffered in our place and died for our sins, that he suffered physically, but he also bore the full weight of God's punishment against all of our sin. But then in victory, he rose from the dead on the third day. And just as he proclaimed a message of repentance and forgiveness, we are now to do the same on his behalf. So Jesus says to them here in verse 48, he says, you are witnesses of these things. Like the disciples saw these things firsthand right in front of them. Like that's amazing. They saw the perfect life of Jesus. They saw his death on the cross in their place. They saw the risen Jesus. He is right there in their presence. They're talking with him. They're listening to him. They're seeing him right in front of them. They were witnesses of these things. And yet, here you and I are today, sitting here with Bibles open and singing the praises of our Savior and the Spirit of God living within us because we have seen, too, the power of his death and his resurrection in our own lives. Like, that is awesome. We have seen the power of God within us to take us from where we were and to bring us to where we are and to take us to where we will one day be. Like, that's amazing. Like, take a minute just right now. Just look around you at the people sitting beside you. A little weird, I know, but go ahead, do it. Just look at the people beside you. Like, those people right now, you see the power of God within their life. Like, you see it not only within your own life, but you see the power of the risen Jesus to save them and to change them. Like, we look around in this church family, and we can testify that we have seen the power of God, the power of the risen Jesus to change us. And we are sent now by Jesus to proclaim the power of his atoning death. Now, how many of us know it to be true that um, this is typically not a message that the world likes to hear, that they're sinners and that they need to be saved? Typically not a message that people like to hear, right? And um, the world hears this message that they're sinners from the very moment that they entered into the world, and then they hear that there's absolutely no way for them to save themselves, no matter what they do or how hard they try, but that God loved them so much that he sent Jesus to take the punishment for their sins through his death in their place. And that the only way, the only way, O-N-L-Y, the only way for them to be saved from the wrath of God is to believe in Jesus as the only hope for their salvation. But that if they refuse to turn away from their sin and trust in Christ, then they will pay for their own sin by spending all of eternity under the just punishment of God. Like, the vast majority of the world around us hears that message and thinks that is the most unloving thing that you could say to anyone. And it is the most unloving thing you could say to anyone unless it's true. And loved ones, we sit here this morning and we know that this gospel message is absolutely true. 
we know that there is a God who loves us and that Jesus has died and risen again to save us. This gospel has been written on our hearts. And because we know that this message is true, because we have experienced the power of what Jesus says in Luke 24, then the most loving thing that we could do is to refuse to keep this message to ourselves. Like, we got to see, we do not have a mission worth pursuing if we do not have a message worth proclaiming. And what Jesus is doing here in Luke 24, he's giving us the message worth proclaiming. He is giving us the mission that is worth losing our entire lives for. Listen, listen, loved ones. Our hope, our hope and the hope of this world is in Jesus Christ. Our hope in this world is in Jesus Christ alone. Listen, our hope is not in self-help. Like, I don't know about you, I just don't get self-help. Like, maybe you understand it, I don't. Like, if you're in a place in your life where yourself needs help, it is because yourself is broken. So why would you ask your broken self to fix your broken self when you can't even help yourself? It doesn't make any sense to me, right? So obviously the answer is not in self-help. Like the answer is not in religion, it's not in tradition, it's not in money, it's not in more of this, it's not in trying harder or doing better, it's not in, it's not in uh, materialism, it's not in consumerism, it's not in any of the stuff that we see around us that the world keeps telling us over and over and over again, put your hope in this, it's not there. Like our hope is in Jesus Our hope is in Jesus Christ and him alone. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. And let me remind you that the hope of the church is in Jesus Christ. We have no hope apart from Jesus Christ. I've I've said this over and over and I'll say it again this morning, that, that this gospel that saved us in the past is the gospel that sanctifies us in the present and it is the gospel that will secure us to the end. That is why, as a church, we need to be absolutely, totally committed for years and generations to come, for as long as the Lord keeps this church on the face of the planet. We need to be committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone because that is the hope of the world, that is the hope of the church, that is the hope for every single one of us sitting in this room right now. We have no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. And so it is him and him alone that we proclaim. Which brings us then to this final point, number four. We are sent by Christ to make disciples of all the nations by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. Turn one last time in your Bible, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts in your Bible. Acts chapter 1, and uh, these are Jesus' final words as he ascends into heaven. The disciples ask Jesus when he will set up his kingdom, and Jesus says it's not for them to know the times or the dates or the seasons, but what's important is the mission that they are about to undertake from that day forward. And uh, Jesus says this to them in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, notice what Jesus says here. Part of the reason that he's given us the Holy Spirit is so that we will have power to be his witnesses. So no matter where we go, whether at home in our own Jerusalem or to the people around us in our own Judeas, 
or among a hostile world in our own Samarias, or to the very ends of the earth among people who have never heard his name, we go with the power of the Holy Spirit. The mission will not succeed because of our abilities or our ideas. The mission will succeed only when we depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us. So the question then is, do we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to lead us? Do we believe that? Like for us as a church, this cannot be a matter of bringing our agenda to the Holy Spirit and asking him to lead us there. If we are going to be Holy Spirit-led, Holy Spirit-empowered, then this must be us bringing our lives to the Holy Spirit, bringing this church to the Holy Spirit in prayers of desperate dependence and pleading with him to show us his plan so that we can follow him there in his power. Like, hear me when I say, I'm not saying that we shouldn't plan. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be prepared for the things that God has in store. Absolutely, we should. All I'm saying is, Are we convinced that we can come before the Spirit of God with no agendas of our own and simply wait for him to lead us where he wants, when he wants, and how he wants? So I was at this pastor's prayer summit earlier this week, uh, just outside of Denver, and about uh, 15 brothers from all across North America uh, gathered at this place. And, And the point of this prayer summit Um, was simply to come before the Lord with no agenda at all. Just seeking the Lord, seeking God, because God is worthy to be sought. And uh, so we spent Tuesday night through Thursday afternoon just praying and singing and uh, confessing sins, reading scripture passages, just seeking the Lord in prayer and in worship. And for the most part, um, it was very spontaneous uh, as the Spirit of God led us and and just reading scripture passages that the Lord had led us to. And, and we had a songbook of well over 200 songs in it that um, just as we were praying, guys would just jump in and start singing and, and singing a song to the Lord. And the rest of us would join in just as the Spirit led us. And, and I, I got to tell you, man, the Lord was at work in that gathering. Like I can stand before you this morning and testify that um, the Lord met me there in some powerful and personal ways that my soul was just desperate to experience. And, and so we're getting close to the end of uh, our few days together. And, and remember, there's no agenda. Like there's no order of service and no well-planned transitions and all that stuff. There's just none of that. And, and so we're just praying and reading and singing and praying and reading and singing and just praising the Lord. And, and so as we're doing this, the Spirit of God in, in the moment as, as we're getting towards the end of our time together leads three of us in the circle um, to a passage in 2 Corinthians 4 without the, the others of us knowing that that's where the others were already landing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we all just turn there. And, and so we read from this passage and we're praying through this passage and just praying the themes that come out of this passage, just encouraging one another and, and praying for God's grace upon us. And, and then, after we're done that, there's, you know, there's this moment of silence and where no one says anything or does anything in that moment And then, I kid you not, two guys in the circle start singing the exact same song at the exact same time in the exact same key. Like, for a room full of guys who can barely sing to begin with, that's pretty amazing, right? And so, 
So this is happening. And, and like we had a songbook of well over 200 songs that both of these guys could have chosen from. And, and these two guys start singing the exact same song at the exact same time in the exact same key. And so they get like a couple of words out after they start singing. And all of a sudden they just stop. Because they realize they're both singing the same song in the same key at the same time. And, and they just stop. And, and it's like dead quiet in the room. Like you could hear a pin drop on the carpet in the room. It was so quiet. And we all just kind of look around the circle at each other. And, and then we finally clicks in and we realize what's happening in that moment. And we just look at each other. And after almost three hours of just praying together, we knew in that moment that was just a sweet sign of the spirits leading us in that moment to praise Jesus. The Spirit of God, listen, the Spirit of God is committed to leading his people into the things that will exalt the name of Jesus. So the question then becomes for us, do we believe that the Spirit of God will lead us where he wants, when he wants, and how he wants? I, I need to tell you, that experience for me this past week was was a moment of gentle conviction from the Lord, but at the same time, a moment of great hope and wonderful expectation. Like Jesus is sending us into the world to make much of his name. And the good news for us is that he has not left us alone. He has not left us alone. He has given us his spirit. And the success of the mission depends not on our performance, but solely on his power. He will lead his people. So, Spirit of God, fill us. Spirit of God, help us. Spirit of God, lead us. Amen?